Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say that we have Michael Reynolds on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Shattering Empires, The Clash and Collapse of the Ottoman and Russian Empires, 1908 to 1918. Today, we live in a world of nations. If you were born in the Republic of X, you probably speak Exian, and you're a citizen of X, and you would gladly fight and die for your Exian brothers and sisters. If, however, you were born in the Republic of X, and you are not by some self-proclaimed identity Exian, then you are, well, a problem. We see a lot of this in the headlines today. But it wasn't always so. Prior to the 19th century, people didn't live in a world of nations. They lived in a world of empires. Now, of course, in hindsight, we think of those empires as being comprised of nations, but The people that ruled them did not see them that way. They saw them as places, places where the sovereign's writ ran. To them, there really were no nations. As Michael Reynolds points out in his terrific book, Shattering Empires, the imperial elites of the 19th century, especially the Russian and Ottoman imperial elites, faced a kind of problem. Actually, it was a dual problem in that they were both confronted with reasonably aggressive Western and Central European powers, powers that were in many ways stronger than they were, and that these Western and Central European powers were exporting a doctrine which they found quite dangerous, and that doctrine was nationalism. Michael, in this terrific book, discusses how the Ottomans and the Russians, and the Ottomans versus the Russians, attempted to deal with these twin problems. Ultimately speaking, neither of them dealt with them terribly successfully. They produced a lot of strategies, some of which involved embracing nationalism and even creating nations. Others involved things like ethnic cleansing, but as I say, ultimately they were not terribly successful in dealing with Western, what I would call Western aggression and nationalism, and both of the empires collapsed. In any event, I really enjoyed talking to Michael today about shattering empires, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Michael. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We have Michael Reynolds on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Shattering Empires. The Clash and Collapse of the Ottoman and Russian Empires, 1908 to 1918. I can tell you that this book is a tremendous achievement. Uh, It takes someone with a very special set of skills to work in this region. Uh, It involves some languages that, at least from the uh, perspective of Americans, uh, are quite difficult to master. And Michael has done that. But more than that, he has sat what seems to me to be endless hours in the archives. I've been to some of these archives myself. Uh, and to me, uh, this was a sort of torture. Uh, Michael told me in the pre-interview he loved it. And, uh, and you can see that in the book because it is a, it's very lovingly produced. Uh, it's extraordinarily well written and clear. And it has something, I think, kind of very important to say uh, of a theoretical sort. And we'll come to that um, in a second. But I should just tell you that it's a very readable book. I hope you go out and get it. It's a... Uh, it's, it's something that I think that people interested in um, the Near East and the Middle East and in empires and nations should, should all pick up. They should really pick up this book and, and read it because it has some eye-opening stuff in it. So anyway, Michael, thank you for writing the book. Why don't we begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, I guess where should I be in? Should I be in with my wife? I was born in... <laughs> I, I was born and uh, grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, though I had no affiliation with the university. No one in my family was tied to the university. Uh, I suppose what's significant in my, my childhood and early education um, was, as I mentioned in the book, uh, a teacher of mine in high school named Carl Crawford uh, really pushed me and others in, in, in my high school to take an interest in international affairs um, and in particular, uh, he had studied uh, Russian and had an interest in Russia and in the Soviet Union. And that was one of the things that started, uh, prodded me to, to take an interest in uh, the Soviet Union. The other big thing, of course, was during the Cold War, 
and you couldn't escape the Soviet Union. It's in on the front page of the papers every day. Yeah. It's on the news every night. Um, so that it, it was it was a huge part of our lives. Uh, and also, in addition to that, I always had an interest in um, I get, in, in military history. And so, given that the Soviet Union was primarily a military rival, that also kind of sparked my interest. Um, in uh, in in Russia and in the Soviet Union, but uh, Carl Crawford, my high school teacher, was was uh, someone who, who saw I had this interest and really encouraged it. Cool. Tell us a little bit about how you came to study Russian Ottoman relations in particular and in this period. Right. So I I came back to the U.S. I graduated. This was after I also I'd gone through officers candidate school, but I had banged up my knee very badly in the last week there. So I was, uh, they graduated me, but put me as NPQ, not physically qualified. Right. And this was after the war with, uh, you know, we have to say the first war with Iraq. Um, so, uh, you know, there's all this talk of uh, shrinking the military. So that didn't look like a very promising thing at all. Moreover, my Russian was fluent and I had a great time there. And so much things are changing there. So let me go back. And I went back and worked for a law firm. I had no idea what I was going to do, but let me look into law, look into business, and try to figure out what I want to do. So I worked in Moscow for a law firm for two years. And it was while there I thought, well, you know, what I could do is, uh, in law or business, you could make a lot of money doing this uh, in the international sphere in particular. I thought that would be great because I could then retire early. I thought, yeah, retire early. <laughs> yeah. What, what would I do if I retire early? It's way of the things I'd like to do. I thought, well, I'd love to read history and I'd like to learn languages. Yeah, you don't sound like the retiring type to me, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> and, and, and so when I realized my thought, well, that's what I would do if I could retire early to read history and read languages. I thought, well, you know, that only gets more difficult when you get older. At least you can read right. history, I suppose, but learn the languages. I thought, that's really what I want to do. I better do it now. And so I decided to go to graduate school, and I had been, as an undergrad, I had been a government major, you know, political science. Right, political science. I liked international relations. I, that seemed, well, that's what I should continue to do, because they, they addressed many of the questions that interested me, and I always had some kind of skepticism about political science. But I started out in Columbia, which had a very good uh, program in international relations and security studies. But after starting political science at the graduate level, I realized this isn't really what I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't, uh, it didn't stimulate me intellectually uh, enough to convince me this is what I wanted to dedicate my life to. And it was while reading uh, for his papers I was writing when I look into the history of, of Turkey and, um, and of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the, I, I found I enjoyed reading those books, mm-hmm. whereas the political science ones I could read them, but I kind of had to have to grit my uh, teeth at times. And so, yeah, when I came to graduate school, I realized what I wanted to do. I wanted to. I knew I'd spent a lot of time in Russia and studied Russia, and uh, thought, well, I'd like to combine this with Turkish, um, in, in part because I thought the Caucasus, which really interested me, was such a small area that I knew if you wanted to pass myself as an expert in the Caucasus, there were, the chances are no one would really care. But I thought you, if you cross to the other side, you could do it from the Turkish perspective as well. And I thought, well, also Turkey's part of this thing called the Middle East. The Middle East, I thought, is always going to be <laughs> it's always going to have interest. So yeah. I thought this would be a good combination. I also thought, well, I know that there's been a lot of interaction between uh, Slavs and Turkic peoples, but that by and large has not been uh, really explored. So I knew there could be a lot of things to do on the uh, relations between you know, Russia and Turkey or between Slavs and Turkic peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, I wanted to learn, uh, when I decided to learn, uh, that was one of the reasons why I decided to learn Turkish. Another one was simply the experience that I'd had living in Russia. Uh, learning Russian really opened up my eyes uh, to seeing the world in a different way. And I wanted to repeat that process. Mm-hmm. I so see. I thought, you know, one of the things going to graduate school is give me an excuse then to spend time in Turkey and I'll be able to look at the world uh, again from a very different vantage point. Yeah. So yeah, that led me to graduate school. But the fact that political science—I uh, mean, I could go through the, the, the problems I, I, I see with the discipline. But one of them was particularly this time there was a real animus towards area studies, mm-hmm. and that included even spending time and really learning a, a language uh, other than English. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that my intellectual interest and my career trajectory probably wouldn't fit uh, political science very well. And I thought what I'd really like to do is Ottoman uh, Ottoman history. And uh, that's brought me to Princeton, where I uh, pursued. I wrote. I got my doctorate at, at Princeton, mm-hmm, and see, worked yeah. with uh, Shuku Hanioglu, 
who uh, was an expert on late Ottoman history, and then with uh, Stephen Kotkin, yeah. uh, who was an expert on uh, Russian and, and Soviet history. Yeah, yeah. So why the period? Um, why this particular period? You know, sort of from the Young Turks to uh, to the uh, to the early twenties. What 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 fascinated you about this period, and why is it significant? Uh, I think it starts with my interest in Russian history. The fact that the the Bolshevik Revolution was such a big event in world history, and I think in general, and understand the 20th century, uh, you really have to know something about uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, so the idea that this is this is a, an event of world, really truly world historical importance. Uh, but at the same time, you knew well you had the fall of the Russian Empire and the formation of the Soviet Union, but you also had the breakup uh, and collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the formation of the Turkish Republic. And given you know, again today with what's going on in the Middle East in uh, in Egypt in uh, in elsewhere, you know, there's talk of the Turkish model and the idea of there's this Turkish road to modernity. Uh, so I thought that this was a fascinating period, certainly in Russian slash Soviet history um, and world history, but also very much as well for uh, the history of Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, and the broader Middle East. And so I thought these two things would really be combined. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, so that was, I knew, so I knew it was both, it was a, his, a period of history that would interest me, but it was also when I thought that would have, had a greater significance, mm-hmm. um, that you get, get an audience, you'd have an audience would be broader than merely specialists, let's say in Ottoman history or merely specialists in, um, in, uh, Turkish history. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about the area which was being contested by these two empires before we talk about the empires. And it runs roughly uh, from the, the Caucasus, and why don't you talk a little bit about the people who live there, mm-hmm. and then um, in, into Anatolia, which is Turkey, and then e- across further into uh, Iraq and northern Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that people won't uh, know about this place is that the people who live there are all in one way or another speak – well, not all, but most – speakers of, of, uh, of, of some Turkish language. Um, Kipchak Turk is what I call it. I don't know what you're supposed to call it, uh, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the region and its peoples. Right. When I, I so most of the most of the book does focus on this this border region between uh, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, as you said, stretching from the Caucasus, including Eastern Anatolia, that you know, today would call Eastern Turkey, um, and then into along the border of Turkey and Iran, and then into uh, northern Iraq. When I uh, so I knew I wanted to do this period, but I, I wasn't actually focused on that geographically. That really came out when I went off to the archives um, in Istanbul to the Ottoman archives and was started just looking for anything to do in, through the catalogs, you know, any interaction with Russia, um, because there's been so much, so little written on the topic of relations with Russia in the beginning of the 20th century that I had nothing really secondary sources to go by, and so I was just you know, what's in the archives. And it kept popping up the stuff of Russian interaction uh, with Kurds and Russians running around the eastern Anatolia. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, wow, this is really a, a – there was a lot of activity uh, going on in the border regions. Because I knew you know, people always think of the, of the straits, the Black Sea Straits, as being a critical thing in Russian-Turkish uh, relations, um, which, which they were. But there was a whole lot going on in the border regions. Um, so to speak about those regions, um, well, I guess where, where, where do I begin? Um, they are uh, a very complex region, um, and to this day they are a complex region. I guess just to start off in eastern Anatolia, at the beginning of the 20th century, you, you know, sort of just to name some of the main groups there, of course you had Turks there, but in my reading of, uh, and one of the things that makes this region so difficult to study is we don't have any solid information on the numbers, uh, absolute numbers of population. Those are very much uh, estimates and guesses, and nor do we have, uh, let alone do we have uh, anything real precise uh, numbers of um, <clears throat> that would break down the population by uh, ethnicity or mm-hmm. even religion. Um, so you certainly have, have Turks in this in this region, um, but you also have uh, the other the, the other main groups are uh, the Kurds. Uh, we're probably, Mike, in my estimation, it's certainly the plurality um, in this region, um, <clears throat> perhaps even uh, the, the majority. Uh, you have uh, Armenians are, at this point in history, a very large uh, part of uh, eastern Anatolia, probably something around 25% uh, of the population. Uh, you also have Assyrian Christians. 
uh, they can further be broken down into their uh, religious, uh, various religious groupings. Most of them were considered um, uh, usually labeled Nestorian uh, Christians. That is a label that's often uh, debated. We, I don't know if we can get into that if we want to. <laughs> um, and, uh, but one of the key things, many of these groups, these are the groups in Eastern Anatolia, they're also living on the, on the Russian side. So, of course, you have in the Russia's caucuses, you have uh, Armenians and you have Kurds and you also have Turks. Uh, and then you have Georgians. There are uh, related to the Georgians on the Ottoman side. You have a group of people called the Laws who are related to the Mingrelians who in turn are related uh, to Georgians uh, linguistically. Uh, the laws are, are, are Muslims, however. Um, in, uh, you have uh, else, elsewhere in, in, in the South Caucasus, of course, the other large uh, group there, in addition to Georgians and Armenians, are uh, the Azeris. Uh, that's a term that was not widely used uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the term we use today. You'd more often see when you look at the sources in the early 20th century, you would see um, either uh, Muslims of the Caucasus or Muslims of the South Caucasus. Occasionally, all Caucasian Turks, though you don't see that as much, uh, but you do see that occasionally. Um, and then the Russian sources, often commonly, they're called uh, Tatars. Uh, mm-hmm. But these are the group that we uh, refer to today as the Azeri uh, Azerbaijanis, um, Azerbaijani Turks, or for short, Azeris, Azeri Turks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Much of northern Iran is also populated by uh, Azeri, uh, Azeri Turks, as well as, of course, Persians, but also Kurds. Um, and in northern Iraq, as most people uh, following current events know uh, today, that that's a very heavily Kurdish region. But you also find, as well, um, and still do, find uh, the Assyrian Christians who I mentioned who are, are scattered um, in northern Iraq. And, and at the beginning of the 20th century, were also located in um, eastern Anatolia, again, what we call uh, eastern Turkey today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, all of these all of these peoples then were kind of divided in a way between the Russian Empire, which had recently expanded into the region, and the, and the slightly... Uh, older in this area, Ottoman Empire. Uh, one of the fundamental themes of your book is the impact of nationalism mm-hmm. on relations between these two states. And you have a, an interesting and I think a convincing thesis about this. Uh, and well, I'll ask you to describe it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that, that, that you would. Well, I uh, will. No, I'll be happy to do it, at least <laughs> my, on my reading. Um, and it is basically that this, that nationalism did not grow out of the ground. No, that in fact, right. it, was, uh, it was seen and recognized as a political tool by elites in uh, the Ottoman and Russian Empire, and then used, often very cynically, uh, for uh, what are really purposes of national security. Uh, That's correct. Um, So in studying the the way the history of this region, uh, to the extent it's been been written on, and and then there had been some uh, books on this uh, history of this region before mine, but there there wasn't an expansive historiography by any means. Um, but generally the focus that people always took was to emphasize uh, the role of nationalism, that this was, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire was an empire that was uh, torn apart by nationalism as these various you know, non-Turkic groups wanted to break away from the empire. And then in response to that, then, you know, the Turks adopted their own nationalism. And um, <clears throat> sort of nationalism is seen as this fire that gets out of control that the empires can't, can't, um, can't, can't control it. And likewise, the same interpretation has often been applied uh, to the Russian Empire. And people say, okay, World War One, you see the, the downfall of the Habsburg Empire and the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. Um, and this, the, the, these empires are all brought down by this nationalism. And sort of oftentimes there is a, uh, a moral attached to this story, which is that when you repress nations, um, it can only work for so long and eventually it's going to destroy you. And that was the mistake that the Ottomans made and the, and the, and the Romanovs made and the Habsburgs made, uh, was that they repressed their, the, these nations and one day finally they, they broke free. Um, so the, certainly in, in the, the historiography and the, hist- you know, the field of nationalism is a huge one. It's a very, very messy one because the, the term is such a, such a, a loose one. Um, there had been, uh, over the past, let's say, I guess now we can certainly say the past three decades, um, a great deal of uh, revision to the earlier story of nationalism, which would emphasize, which looked at nations as being um, as primordial entities that essentially existed from the beginning of time, more or less, or sometime emerged at some very, very distant time in the past. 
then these uh, nations, let's say the Armenians, the Kurds, uh, Greeks, uh, Bulgarians, uh, were then you know, conquered by the Turks and uh, kept under these, this empire until then, in the beginning of the 19th century, they began to rediscover uh, who they were and emerge from the empires. There's been a lot of history, uh, history of scholarship in the past uh, three decades that began to refine this picture by pointing out that, in fact, many of these uh, so-called nations um, didn't have uh, really emerged only in the 19th century. And this is all. This kind. Of, this approach is known uh, commonly as the constructive approach. Nations aren't uh, primordial entities. In fact, they're constructed. And most of these theories is the people like Benedict Anderson, um, Hroch, um, I could name others. Um, again, there there are many. Generally, always emphasized uh, looking at the processes. Um, socio-economic economic processes at the ground. So the idea is that the these uh, nations are driven by things such as the spread of literacy, uh, by industrialization, uh, by the spread of mass education. And so once you get these, when you start mass education, when you have industry forming, then after that you begin to see the emergence of a national identity. And the problem when I, when I looked at the Ottoman history and then the history of the Russian Empire in areas like the Caucasus, was that these are precise areas where you see very little mass, if, if any, you see very little mass education, virtually no industry, and none of these socioeconomic processes that are supposed to uh, be the engines of, national, uh, of nationalism and the emergence of national uh, identities. So, in that, so I knew there was something very wrong before I started doing my archival work. There was something very wrong with the way that historians had treated this period in um, emphasizing the emergence of nationalism among these borderland peoples because theoretically it, it just didn't make sense. Um, in addition to that, and sp specifically, I was a bit confused by how I knew the, the, the general outlines of the you know, period from 1908 to uh, you know, 1923 was that you have the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is said to be also the time when you have the, this emergence of a very strong Turkish nationalism, and that culminates in the formation of the Turkish Republic that's founded by a guy named Mustafa Kemal, who then takes the, the surname of Ataturk, you know, Father Turk, in someone who uh, embraces and espouses a very explicit and very uh, rigorous uh, Turkish nationalism. Well, this was the same guy, Mustafa Kemal, that uh, happened to assist the Bolsheviks in reconquering the Caucasus. <laughs> and so, I, you know, how could it be that you know nationalism was supposed to be quite so growing so stronger and stronger in the Ottoman Empire and culminates in the formation of this Turkish Republic, when um, at the same time this is the period where we see the Turkish, uh, the, the new elites of Turkey are in fact uh, assisting um, a foreign power, the, the Bolsheviks. Uh, conquer their ethnic brethren um, in the Caucasus, and so that that was one of the. So these things told me the fact that the, the theories of nationalism couldn't really explain the uh, the alleged rise of, of nationalist movements in the Ottoman Empire, and certainly not in the uh, in this border region with with, uh, with the Russian Empire, and couldn't really explain the dynamics of the. Uh, I guess let's say the relations between the Ottomans and the Russian Empire and then between uh, the Turkish nationalists and the Soviet Union that I saw there, there was a real big problem here and that was one that, that, that spurred me then to take this on mm -hmm. um, as a, a project that uh, emerged, you know, grew into, into the book. Mm -hmm. So then uh, your alternative explanation for the, uh, the I'd want to say the emergence of nationalism because that's kind of a metaphor that uh, you know, it's a little bit organic for, I think, the purposes of the book. But so your alternative explanation for the phenomenon of nationalism in these regions and the and the appearance of many what what look to be nation states is is the the interstate order, um, and I use that term interstate uh, very uh, explicitly. Usually, this is what we refer to as the international order. Where and this is one of our problems in our language. We take so much for granted the idea that nations na nation states are the norm. And even in uh, political scientists, who, to their credit, one of the things I do credit uh, political science for, they're very good, much better than historians, at defining their terms. Uh -huh. um, and that was one of the things I learned when uh, in graduate school in political science. That I, um, 
<clears throat> benefited from was this attention to uh, the way you define your terms. But even they will will, will, kind of, will say inter, you know, one of their subsets of political science is international relations, um, where the assumption is well, really, what we're talking about is nations relating to each other. When in fact, what we are talking about is not nations; we're talking about states. Um, and so I emphasize uh, the interstate order. That is, you know, the, I guess to, 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 to try to, to, to sum, summarize it, um, the reason why you get the Turkish Republic is not because you have this groundswell, of, in my opinion, it's not because you get this groundswell of uh, nationalist sentiment among Turks of the Ottoman Empire. It's because you have uh, a leadership um, in the late Ottoman period and then at the time of uh, the formation of the Turkish Republic who realizes that, look, if we're going, we want to set up a state, and if we're going to make it legitimate, it has to be a nation state. So we're going to uh, make our state, we're going to create a nation to go along with our state, and we're going to um, convert, essentially, the population that lives within the borders of our state into a nation. And this was not, you know, this was not exceptional at all for the Turkish Republic, to the contrary, this is a pattern that is uh, repeated throughout the Balkans and, um, and, and throughout the world. And the reason why, so I think it's a mistake when people look for the, the, the roots of nationalism as emerging at the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century by trying to look at things going on in the ground because the conditions, um, the, again, the socioeconomic conditions in all the various regions of the world where nationalist movements begin to emerge are so different, they don't fit the uh, theoretical uh, preconditions for the rise of nationalism, but what you do see the emergence of political movements that want to claim uh, independence and sovereignty, and they realize that the the best way to do that is by making their claims in, in the uh, in the form of in, in nationalist terms. So really, this was a, a political program that they were using in order to. Um, well, I want to say in hindsight, save what remained of the Ottoman Empire. Because as you point out in the book, many of the young Turks and the people that followed them were from the Balkans. And I think that you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they realized pretty early on that this area, which they highly prized and was very, very valuable to them, was irretrievably lost. And so they needed to, to create uh, what we would call a political base someplace else. Uh, yeah, that, yeah that's in, in, absolutely. The, I mean, the... As the Ottoman, uh, the ruling elite of the Ottoman Empire, um, in particular the uh, Committee of Union and Progress, is a group usually known uh, in English um, as the Young Turks. Um, it, that's a phrase I don't really like because uh, it's not a it's not a term name that the Committee of Union and Progress used for themselves. Yeah. Um, it was one that was imposed from the outside, yep. and it reflects this assumption, which was the dominant assumption among um, Europeans at the time, like Western Europeans that the world is naturally divided up into entities called nations and that the natural division, of, and that's, humanity is naturally divided up into nations and each of those nations should have, has a right to its own state. Uh, so when you had this group, the Committee of Union and Progress, uh, over, you know, restores the Constitution in 1908, they are referred to as the Young Turks, mm -hmm. um, but they themselves call themselves unionists. Is probably the, is the best term to use. That's the one that they use themselves, and um, you know the short for the, uh, the name of their political party, the Committee of Union and Progress. And their number one priority was to save their state first, to save the Ottoman Empire, and then, then when they saw that going down, then to save what could be salvaged of it, and that's what eventually becomes becomes known as the Turkish Republic. Let me ask you this question. The perspective that you bring to the uh, production and spread of nationalism, which I think is the correct one, and you show it with good archival materials, that is that elites in both the Russian and the Ottoman Empire were very concerned to use nationalism to their benefit. Right. This perspective puts a number of events that um, that I thought we had kind of settled in a really entirely new light, I don't know if it's entirely new light because I don't know the historiography very well, but the two I'm thinking about that I want you to talk about are, one, the Ottoman decision to go to uh, war on the side of the Germans, and then two, uh, what we call the Armenian Genocide. So why don't we begin by talking about the Ottoman decision to go to war with the Germans. Why did they do that exactly? 
the audience, uh, I, I think really the, the, the best uh, person on this is, is Mustafa Aksakal, who wrote a great book, um, The Ottoman Road to War. Uh, the Ottomans, when they make the decision to go to war with Germany, uh, it's really, it's, it's not a very difficult one to understand um, from my perspective. They're, they face three great, World War I be, when World War I begins, it's, it's a struggle between uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary on one side, uh, ranged against uh, the Russian Empire, uh, Britain, and France. And so the Ottomans look at this, uh, you know, should we get involved in this war or should we not? When they realize this war is going to be, have a decisive impact on the, on, on the balance of power, not just in Europe, but in the world, and more specifically uh, with regard to the Middle East. So they realize that whatever happens in this war, we're going to be directly affected by it. Their number one, the main threat that they realize is not so much, uh, you know, this is the thing about the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, was really not so much driven by internal uh, rebellions and uh, nationalist, let, let alone nationalist movements. There was certainly a problem. The Ottomans were constantly engaged in uh, suppressing various uh, uprisings. And this isn't, this isn't merely a, a, um, a phenomenon of the late 19th century uh, or the early 20th century, it goes throughout uh, Ottoman history, that they're you know, often faced with various kinds of rebellions. But really, the main problem, the biggest challenge they face are the great powers. That is, in particular, the, the Russian Empire, uh, which is their number one uh, existential threat, and that's something that's often forgotten by uh, or overlooked by both historians of the Ottoman Empire and those in, more broadly dealing with the Ottoman Empire, that their bases huge, uh, have been... on. Facing a huge uh, threat from Russia mm-hmm. uh, for for quite some time. Um, so, in looking at World War One, they know our number one enemy is the Russian Empire because they're vastly stronger than us, and they're also right on our uh, yeah. doorstep. You can't ignore them, and they're breathing down our necks. But in addition to that, you also have the British Empire. The British, of course, uh, took Cyprus. They also took uh, Egypt. It was still in 1914 nominally under Ottoman control, but everyone knows it's, it, you know, that was only nominally. And the British are also becoming more influential um, in the Gulf area. Uh, <clears throat> the Gulf area here, I mean the Persian Gulf mm-hmm. and the, the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, so the British are only in, in increasing their influence in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the French, too, have become uh, a real concern to the Ottomans because they are more and more active in uh, the Levant, in the areas that we know today as uh, Lebanon in, in Syria, which, of course, after World War I, the French uh, do uh, take these areas uh, under their um, control. So these are the three greatest uh, con- security concerns to the Ottomans. And then you have uh, fighting them are the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. Now, the Austro-Hungarians, they have a, a long history of fighting with, with the Ottomans, but the Ottomans recognize that this time the Austro-Hungary is, is uh, at best just trying to hang on to its own territory. It, does, it doesn't pose the same kind of threat to the Ottomans as do the Russians, the British, or the French. And then you have Germany. And Germany, at this point, uh, has no immediate claims on Ottoman territory. Shares, there's no borders of any sort with the Ottomans. And Germany is, uh, in addition, so in addition to not posing any threat to the Ottomans, uh, Germany is the prime enemy of, uh, prime rival to uh, the British, uh, to the French, and to the Russians. Germany is, moreover, uh, <clears throat> arguably the most powerful uh, state in Europe, and it certainly is arguably also the most advanced. So if you're looking from the Ottoman perspective, you're looking for an ally, Germany is clearly the one that you should ally with, mm-hmm. um, because they are the enemy of your enemies. And they have posed no direct uh, threat to you, although there was concern among the Ottomans that in the future the Germans are going to might be a threat, but for the immediate uh, future they don't pose a threat. And um, they're also they stand a pretty good chance of winning this war. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the Ottomans throw in their lot with the Germans, it makes uh, a great deal of sense. Um, it, it's it's not a mystery. Um, at the same time, I should put out, there was discussion of maybe joining with the Entente, and there were some Ottomans who, who favored uh, joining uh, with the British and the French. Um, and I could get into some there were specific reasons then why the, the, the Entente was never really all that interested in bringing the Ottomans in on their side. And even there were among the Germans uh, some concerns that we, are the Ottomans going to help us out in this war? Um, they might be more of a drag on us than not. And this was on both uh, among the uh, on the Entente powers as well as the um, uh, the Germans, uh, 
there was the there was this real shock at how badly the Ottoman army performed mm-hmm. in the Balkan Wars in 1912, 1913. So there was some thought, well, again, among the Entente, you know, maybe we don't even want to have the Ottomans as our eyes. Likewise, there was this thought uh, among the Germans that these guys uh, might be more of a drag on us uh, than an aid. Um, <clears throat> but the decision is made uh, by the Ottomans, in particular by the Minister of uh, War and Verpasha, um, to, to, uh, they, make, they make the decision to throw their lot in with the Germans. Mm-hmm. What did they hope to achieve had the Germans won, or had they and the Germans won? What, was their, what were their war aims? Let's just imagine for a second that the Germans win and the Ottomans win. What, what would they have gotten out of this? What, what did they want? The, what they were hoping to get was a breather. The, what they were hoping to get was a period where uh, they could conduct reforms, uh, internal reforms, that would enable them to strengthen uh, their empire. When when the Ottoman, when the young Turks come to, you know, <clears throat> come to power, you know, well, you know, for the sake of simplification, we'll say this uh, happens in, in 1908, and um, when they restore the Ottoman constitution. Um, later in, it's 1913 when there's a they, uh, there's a coup d'état where the the, the young Turks, or I shouldn't say young Turks, let me say the Unionists. Yes. Uh-huh. When, when the Unionists um, come to power, and then really in 1913 uh, they uh, rule through through a dictatorship, um, their primary concern, overwhelming, is look, we've got to, in order to save our empire, we have to uh, conduct reform. And this is where the name of their party, the, uh, the Committee of Union and Progress, the idea is we want to maintain the union of all Ottoman elements through progressive reforms. That is, modernizing reforms, uh, establishing a more centralized more effective, uh, administratively effective uh, state. And their problem was, is, you know, after they come to power in 1908, uh, shortly after that is when uh, they lose the provinces uh, of Bosnia, is taken by the Austrians, uh, Bulgaria then uh, formally announces its uh, in- independence. Um, you have in the uh, 1911, Italy starts a war with the Ottomans and then takes uh, the territories that we know today as Libya. Uh, and they're faced with one crisis after another. Then the, 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 the Balkan Wars hit in 1912, 1913, so they lose uh, what had been the historical you know, heart of their empire and some of the most valuable territories that they had and a huge uh, portion of their population. Meanwhile, at this time, the Russians are making uh, noise about uh, exerting influence and in taking over the administration of the provinces of eastern Anatolia, so it looks like that territory, those territories as well are going to go. So the Unters are doing everything they can just to hold on to their territory. So when this war is breaking out in the heart of Europe, they decide to align themselves with Germany. And what they extract from the Germans in, the, in exchange for a secret uh, treaty of alliance is a German guarantee of support for five years. Mm-hmm. And their hope is initially that, in fact, this, when the expectation at the beginning of World War I by most people is that this is going to be a very short war. It'll be a war that's won by decisive battles very quickly in the beginning. And it's not going to go on for very long. So the Ottoman hope is, in fact, that this war is going to be... We got out of this uh, war before the Ottoman, formally get, Ottoman Empire formally gets into it. We got out of it what we really want, which is this treaty of alliance and this guarantee from the Germans. And this is going to enable us, for, give us a period of at least five years where we can undertake reforms at home and strengthen uh, our state and bring us to the point where we can perhaps defend ourselves against, again, primarily the Russians, but also the British and uh, the French. Mm-hmm. So uh, the war, of course, as we know, does not end very quickly. And uh, <clears throat> the Germans begin to put increasing, they signed the Treaty of Alliance with the Germans in August of 1914, and the Germans begin to put increasing pressure upon the Ottomans to jump into the war, um, which they do at in the very end of, uh, of October. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when they get into this war, so the, the primary hope when they enter the war is, uh, you know, is again, is basically to preserve themselves, to come out as to see, to have a treaty of alliance with the major power, and then they hope to see the Russians knocked down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So, uh, how does so during the course of the war? Um, I mean, in addition to trying to save their what we would call multinational empire, they they attempt to uh, create a um, uh, let's call it a more Turkish Anatolia, and they do this by uh, expelling and um, ultimately murdering a lot of Armenians. How? How do we put this in light of the framework that you've presented? 
Right. I guess uh, two things I should I should backtrack on to give a little more background. So in the Ottoman Empire, you often there's this assumption, common assumption, uh, you see this repeated in all sorts of books. The Ottoman Empire jumps into World War One uh, because you, it's run by these crazy um, young Turks <laughs> who are driven by this uh, Turkish nationalism and have been a very strong uh, irredentist uh, ideology. That is, in essence, the, 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 the Turks see this is a moment where now we can attack Russia, go into the Caucasus, liberate our Muslim Turkish brethren um, in the Caucasus, and then drive deeper into Central Asia. Because, look, we're losing this uh, empire that we have. We've lost the Balkans. Um, we're probably going to lose the Arab territories. And we don't really care about them because we're Turkish nationalists. And we can set up a new empire that's going to incorporate these territories um, uh, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes some people put more of an emphasis on, okay, it wasn't so much a Turkish nationalism, it was more a uh, pan-Islamist uh, aspirations that drove them, that, you know, it wasn't so, maybe so important that you have these Turk, Turkic, uh, that there are the Turkic Muslims in, in the Russian Empire, what's really important is more, there are more Muslims rather than Turks, and then kind of a third variant on this is uh, this idea of uh, Turanism, which is kind of a vague, uh, vaguer, looser, more flexible version of pan-Turkism, where you could, uh, <clears throat> that would the idea here being that the, the Turks and other peoples emerge from this uh, mythical place called Tehran, and that they share um, certain common uh, Tehranic bonds mm-hmm. between them. Um, you can think about this just sort of pan-Turkism, but one that could, let's say, also accommodate um, people groups like the Tajiks in Central Asia. Um, who are Persian speakers, they aren't Turkic speakers, as well as the various multiple non-Turkic uh, peoples of uh, the North Caucasus, um, such as you know, the Chechens, Avars, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, but the, so the basic idea is that these guys have some kind of uh, pan-nationalist uh, fervor is driving them, and that leads them to go on this crazy, uh, to take this crazy decision to plunge their empire into World War I, and join up with the Germans in, in the visions of establishing this greater empire in, 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 uh, in Russia. And as I was just explaining earlier, um, that really is not the case. They do initiate the war in, um, there is this famous, uh, they do launch an offensive in December of 1914, and it goes into the very beginning of, of January of 1915. They do launch an offensive um, into the Caucasus, um, and the Ottoman Empire suffers a stunning defeat at a place called Sardakamush. Uh, and that's often that, because that ended in disaster. Um, over you know, about thirty thousand Ottoman soldiers uh, were lost. Some estimates, which are not very reliable, would you know, inflate that figure up to ninety thousand. And again, here too, the explanation is: uh, you know, this looks like it was sheer idiocy to take this offensive into the Caucasus because it was in of all times to go into the mountains. You choose to go right in the end of December, beginning of January. Mm-hmm. You're sending in uh, troops who aren't very well, uh, they aren't clothed to, for winter combat. Uh, many of them don't even have proper footgear. And surely this is an example of, of insanity. And the way to explain this is, again, it must have been uh, primarily the Minister of War, Enver Pasha, who had this crazy, uh, must be his crazy pan-Turanist, pan-Islamist, pan-Turkist, um, aspirations that did this. You look more closely at that uh, offensive, and what you see is that um, there was uh, <clears throat> there was a mix of opinions, both among Ottoman officers as well as German advisors, as to whether it might succeed. Several actual people uh, did think it might it succeed. And in fact, the beginning of the operation, it, it almost did. It really scared the Russians, um, threw the Russian army into a panic. And contrary to the ideas that this is a crazy time to begin an offensive. At the beginning of, of the offensive, the weather was, in fact, uh, unseasonably warm. It's during the, well, as the operation is going on, the weather shifts suddenly, and that's where you get so many th- tens of thousands of Ottoman soldiers uh, freezing to death, and the offensive ends in the calamity. But the idea behind it was this, the, the Germans wanted the war, wanted this offensive, and um, was one to relieve uh, the pressure, military pressure on them in the eastern fr- their eastern front and fighting the Russians, this would force the Russians to divert uh, forces um, from Eastern Europe down to the Caucasus. Um, and then also, if you're going to go to war with the, with the Russian Empire and you're, and you're the Ottomans, where else can you really attack but yeah, the Caucasus? Right. And in fact, one of the things I discovered was the initial plans were to have an amphibious invasion 
um, that would be in the areas that we call today uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't, and there, and there was talk even of, of, of perhaps we could even get the Cossacks on their side, which sounds really quite bizarre, and, 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 and it was. But when you look at the Ottoman strategic thinking at the beginning of the war, you don't find much at all um, idea that we really need to liberate the Muslims of the Caucasus, um, let alone um, that we're going, or, or this idea that we're going to invade the Caucasus. That's our first, uh, our number one um, uh, objective. And I could go through the, the, which I do in the book, I talk about you know, the fact that most of their mobilization plans um, were, they were expecting to go on the offensive in the Balkans. And um, so really the decision in the Sarko mission is, one, we need to attack the Russian Empire because we've joined this war. The Germans need to have relief. And the Germans were saying, we're not going to keep the money flowing to you unless, until you start this. And, um, the, and the place to start, the, the only place where you can really effectively attack the Russians is through the Caucasus. So this defeat is catastrophic for the Ottomans at Sarkomush. And this, uh, so the, after that defeat is when the, the Russian army begins to roll into the Caucasus. And they are, the Ottomans face a great deal of, um, have a very difficult time, and they can't hold back the Russian army. I mean, the Russians in the previous wars that they had fought with the Ottomans in the 19th century had rolled into, into as far as Erzurum quite easily. And it looks like they're going to be able to repeat the same thing. So the point is, after Sarakomish, the Ottomans realize we have the Russians push, pushing on us um, from the Caucasus and from northern Iran. We're losing on that front. Then also in April of 1915 is when you have the British and the French are mounting an offensive um, on the Black Sea Straits. That is uh, the Dardanelles, and the idea is then we'll uh, capture the Dardanelles Straits and then drive up to Istanbul, and this will capture Istanbul and open up the, the Bosphorus and the, all of the Black Straits to Russia so that then mm-hmm. the Entente powers can supply Russia. That, you know, we're faced. Our, our everything is falling apart. We're we're might we're, we're being the Russians are pushing in um, on us uh, from the east. We have the British and the French pushing up from the south. It looks like they're going to capture the capital. We're losing everything. And it's at this uh, time in 1915 where they uh, undertake a series of decisions to start deporting um, Armenians in particular. Uh, from Eastern Anatolia, and then they expand this uh, elsewhere in Anatolia. Um, this is uh, one of the most uh, highly contested um, areas of historiography. It's certainly, I think, the most uh, the hottest uh, issue in Ottoman historiography. And this I, Ottoman, I mean, the whole gamut from um, the founding of the Ottoman dynasty, 1299, to the end. Um, it's also one of the most uh, controversial issues in, uh, I think it's fair to say, in Middle Eastern um, historiography, although there are plenty of others. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Middle Eastern historiography does not uh, suffer for lack of, uh, of controversies. Um, so these deportations begin in 1915. There's still is, there's a lot more we know about the deportations uh, today than we did know, I think even fair to say, certainly within the last 10 years, I think even the last five years. A lot of uh, much better research has come about. Um, the way that I see uh, the deportations, according to everything that I've read, both the things I've read in the archives and then um, uh, the other uh, new scholarship emerging, um, is that the deportations do begin uh, with the idea of this is, this is a, a security practice. And in fact, the, the, the Russian Empire in World War I um, is the one, the one that really initiate deporting problematic, we'll call them for right now, okay, problematic population groups is, uh, and that's problematic from the standpoint of uh, state decision makers. Mm-hmm. We can talk about why they think they're problematic. Is that a fair or, or an accurate just uh, classification or is there something else going on here? And where this, where this idea that these population groups are, are problematic. Um, that's not a new thing in history. Uh, and it's not a new thing in World War One, but it's often overlooked that the, that the Russian Empire uh, undertook, uh, before the Ottomans began mass deportations, the Ottoman Empire, um, excuse me, the Russian Empire undertakes mass deportations, um, one on their, on their front with Germany, where they deport large numbers of Germans and Jews, and Eric Lohr, is, 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 among others, has, has written on this. And they also undertake uh, deportations of Muslims from the Caucasus. So the first mass deportations in the, board, in the Ottoman-Russian borderlands uh, take play, are, are conducted by the Russians. 
And it's something the Ottomans are very much aware of. And in fact, when the deportations of Armenians begin, the Ottomans, in fact, point to the example of what the Russians did to uh, Muslims um, who live in what today we know as Georgia. Um, the El Valley is where they deported. Uh, the estimates, I think, are about 70,000 mm -hmm. uh, Muslims. And they destroyed the villages, etc. cetera. Um, so the idea of um, identifying population groups, you know, by identifying groups by, based on ethnicity as in, and taking ethnicity to be a politically important marker um, is not an Ottoman invention, but it's one that's certainly applied by the Ottomans in 1915. And they identify the Armenians are a problem because they have this um, ethnic identity um, as Armenians. Uh, they are initially deported, I believe it is because of security reasons. Um, there are Armenian partisans who are operating behind Ottoman lines. Um, and who are conducting acts of sabotage. Some people argue these acts of sabotage really weren't that significant. I can definitely say that might be the case. This really needs to be uh, one of those things that really needs to be studied. But I can definitely tell you that the Ottoman uh, military uh, leadership was genuinely concerned about the possibility of partisan activity, not just the possibility, about the fact of partisan activity in the rear. And when you read the dispatches and communications between uh, Ottoman officers discussing what is going on, you know, are, are we being attacked, are we not being attacked, um, I see uh, really, there's real concern and there's also a real effort to try to figure out what's going on. Um, so you know, they, they, there, there are times when people, uh, Ottoman officers write, well, there are rumors that there, this uh, Armenian population of this town is engaged in activities against us, but in fact, that appears not to be the case. So you see, I, I see at least a genuine attempt to understand what's going on. So the initial attempt uh, idea is get rid of these population groups because they are inherently disloyal to us and they are supporting partisan activity. But the deportations, I, they grow beyond that. Um, and they grow, uh, they are extended to um, Armenians not living in the immediate area of combat, but elsewhere in, in Anatolia. And this is where I think that it's the, the, the security explanation in the immediate sense, the security explanation that this is a time of war and we need to get uh, rid of these people because they are um, conducting or supporting a partisan activity in our rear doesn't apply. It looks uh, to me, and this is uh, in particular a young uh, uh, scholar who writes in Turkish by the name of Fuat Dundar um, has done a great deal of research on this by uh, looking at Ottoman policies, um, not only towards Armenians, but what were they doing with other uh, non-Muslims, not, excuse me, uh, whether they were not simply with non-Muslims, what they were doing with Muslims as well. And to cut to the chase, uh, you see a mass deportation of Armenians, particularly from Eastern Anatolia, but elsewhere. And you see an effort to settle uh, Muslims, and particularly uh, Turks, in those regions that were evacuated by Armenians in an attempt to resettle uh, non-Turkic groups, um, particularly the Kurds, in areas of Anatolia, that is, again, what we think of today as, uh, as Turkey, in the western parts of Turkey, in what looks like an effort to promote the long-term um, homogenization, uh, the cultural homogenization of the population uh, to form a Turkish nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... You know, with the Armenians, uh, the Armenians, the problem with the Armenians is that uh, very difficult to, uh, in, in addition to the fact that they're believed by the, uh, they're, well, there are a number of, of problems. One um, is that the Armenian question is not a new one. It doesn't emerge in 1915. Uh, and this is something I, I discuss in the book, and it's very important to understand that, or what was going on in diplomatic circles prior to World War I that there had been a great deal of, let's say, great power interest in the conditions of Armenians uh, beginning in the late 19th century, and the conditions of Armenians under Ottoman rule in the late 19th century. And when a lot of that, certainly from the Ottoman perspective, I think they're by and large justified that, uh, justified in looking at it this way, that interest by the part of the great powers, including uh, the Russians, was really not so much interest in the the security of the Armenian population living in Ottoman uh, Eastern Anatolia, but rather they saw this as as <clears throat> a lever, or a um, that is the Armenian question was a 
was a device through which they could exert their influence in um, Ottoman Eastern Anatolia, which prior to World War I was shaping up more and more, not as a zone merely of rivalry between the Ottoman and the Russian empires, but between the Russian empire and uh, the British and the mm -hmm. French and the Germans as well. So when the Russians were looking at this territory, um, Eastern Anatolia, what they were saw as the problem was um, when they realized our caucuses what was uh, they, what was turned by um, Russian statesmen as our turbulent caucuses. This is, this is a, a term, incidentally, which is quite uh, applies very well uh, in the present day. Yeah. Still, is a very turbulent area. Russian statesmen looked at this area as our turbulent caucuses and saw it as a zone of vulnerability and one that was. Um, could be a real problem. Uh, they they face inherent it's inherently unstable, and they feared the possibility that the British, the French, or the Germans might be able to destabilize this region if they could establish a presence in eastern Anatolia. Mm -hmm. um, so this is prior to World War One. Yeah. So the Russians aren't so much concerned about what the Ottomans can can do to them. What kind of threat can the Ottomans pose? Because the Russians look, the Ottoman Empire is is weak, and it's not going to be in existence. Um, it's a matter of, uh, of time before it disappears. And, uh, but what we need to worry about is the possibility of, of a failed state emerging on our southern Caucasian border. Um, that's today what we would call a failed state. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as we think of failed states today as being uh, zones where uh, terrorist groups and other illegal formations can emerge and then uh, spread instability uh, to surrounding regions, that's precisely what they were fearing, was that it would become a... Uh, a failed state zone of instability that would be in and of itself would mm -hmm. be a threat to them, but particularly if the, if the British or the French or the Germans started mucking around there. So the Russians know we need, or not know, or begin to think that we need to uh, extend our influence into this region. And this is where they, one lever with which they could do this was by uh, pointing to Ottoman uh, mistreatment of the Armenians. Mm -hmm. So prior to World War One, the same time they're insisting, and this was... Uh, <clears throat> In the Treaty of Berlin signed in 1878, one of the things that the Ottoman Empire was obliged to do was to carry out reforms to provide for the security of the Armenian population living um, in, its, in, in eastern Anatolia. Mm -hmm. And that gave the prerogative, didn't give the obligation to the great powers to intervene, but it did give them the prerogative to intervene. Uh, <clears throat> and during when you have these horrid massacres of Armenians in the middle of the 1890s, interestingly enough, uh, the Russians, in fact, uh, not only do they not uh, intervene, they actually uh, shut down any chance of intervening. The, the possibility is raised by, raised by the British. Maybe we should intervene in this case. The Russians say no because they don't want um, – they're afraid that the British might be able to exploit such intervention to, the, uh, to their own interests, that is, to the mm -hmm. interests of the British Empire. So, but suddenly with the, with the Balkan Wars, with the Ottoman losses in 1912-1913 and the Balkan Wars, the Russians are really afraid now. The Ottoman Empire looks like it's so weak it might collapse at any moment. In fact, it's not going to. It's not only is it can the British the, the, or the French easily uh, push over the Ottoman Empire, but it looks like even the Greeks or the Bulgarians can. And um, you know, there's there might be a possibility Greece or Bulgaria, some small Balkan power, might actually you know, go in there and capture Istanbul and and uh, eventually you know create destroy the Ottoman Empire, and, and the Russians would be faced with this. Uh, chaos emerging on their southern borders. So they begin to start pounding the table uh, and demanding that the Ottomans uh, carry out reforms that had been, uh, that they were, carry out their obligation in the Treaty of Berlin and institute reforms in eastern Anatolia that would then uh, provide for the security of the Armenians. Because the problem is that the, this territory is kind of a low low level uh, infighting uh, going on between uh, the Kurdish tribes of the region and the Armenians. Now, without getting into any of the details here, it's a fascinating story. That's again, one that I, I discussed in the book. At the same time, the Russians are pounding the table, demanding that the Ottomans carry out reforms to provide the security of Armenians. The Russians are also uh, encouraging a Kurdish insurgency. And that Kurdish insurgency is aimed primarily at not only the Ottoman government, but it's also very much aimed at the Armenians. And the Ottomans are aware of this. At the same time, we are being blamed for not providing the security of the Armenians it's the outside powers that are also fomenting um, strife between uh, the Armenians and Kurds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And this, they saw, was the same pattern, the same way they had lost Macedonia. Um, rightly or wrongly, the Ottomans saw there in Macedonia, they were blamed for not being able to control uh, various insurgent groups, control Mac- Macedonia. They were faced by a, a number of insurgencies there, which they believed were being uh, supported by outside powers. Uh, you have a very similar dynamic then that seems to be playing out in Eastern Anatolia. So the message, the thing that the Ottomans take away from this is that essentially as long as we have uh, Armenians living on our territory, living out here, particularly in Eastern Anatolia, we're never going to know, have peace because there's this intractable conflict between Kurds and Armenians and outside powers are constantly, are, are, can always um, gen, you know, help, they can always point to that conflict as reason to intervene and they can, in fact, even foment that mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the thing we need to do, and this is how it looks to me, is that the decision is made to deport Armenians um, for security reasons, but then the Minister of Interior, uh, Talat Pasha, I think makes the decision, look, we've got a lot of these Armenians on, we're moving them out of Eastern Anatolia, we're moving them into uh, Syria, in particular to uh, a desert region known as Derzor, and we're moving them out of there, and you know, if a lot of them died off, it wouldn't be the worst thing for us mm-hmm. um, because we're never, ever going to have any kind of uh, peace or stability in Eastern Anatolia um, as long as they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, you know, the things that surprised me when I started my research um, is that, you know, the assumption that, you know, there was a great deal of uh, Armenian sympathy uh, towards Russia and sort of the Armenians are always seen as the, as the um, cat's paw of Russian imperialism. In fact, you look more closely, one of the things that actually really what frightened the Russians about this idea of an Ottoman, uh, about a failed state emerging in Ottoman Anatolia on their border was, in fact, they would be faced with a very strong Armenian uh, insurgency. Mm-hmm. That you would have Armenian revolutionary groups who had already caused uh, been a headache for the, Ottoman, for the Russians in both northern Iran, which the Russian Empire occupied at this time, and in Russia's caucuses that now they would face a consolidated uh, program of destabilization led first and foremost not only by, but primarily by, or first and foremost by uh, Armenian revolutionary groups that were based in eastern Anatolia. Um, the, the dynamics of the relations between the Armenians and the Russians and uh, you know, Kurds, Kurdish Farish, Kurdish tribes and Kurdish groups and the Ottomans is ex- extremely complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the when I was about to say all these various groups, one important thing to understand is particularly when they speak about the Armenians and the Kurds is that there are multiple, these aren't states, and this is one of the difficulties in writing the book, and one of the things I hope I tried to get across is how complex the, the politics were when you have several, uh, you have all different groups among the, you can refer, you have to be very careful to refer to these groups, you know, the Armenians wanted X or the Armenians yeah. Y or yeah. the Kurds were X or Y because you'll find people in these groups on all sides um, during this conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it remains just as complex today, I think. And, uh, you know, I'll laugh it here in the newspaper that the Kurds want this or the Kurds want that, and I'm, I'm constantly asking which Kurds we're talking about here because there are a lot of Kurds and they think different things. So anyway, I, I hate to say that we've run out of time, but before I let you go, uh, Michael, I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Uh, that's uh, I have two two projects that I'm um, I'm still at the very beginning stages of both of them. One is I kind of wanted to get away from um, this sort of story of geopolitics and, and, and conflict and, and try something different. And one of the things that originally had me interested in doing this comparison between uh, between Ottoman and Russian stuff and picking the period of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1970, you know, so this period of early Turkish Republic, late Ottoman, and then Soviet in Russian history, was um, the similarities in, in the programs of modernization among the Kamalists and then uh, the Bolsheviks, in particular mm-hmm. their attitudes towards religion. Hmm. So I'm looking at the, doing some kind of comparative uh, look at the impact and application, well, let me see, the, the application of secularism um, in uh, the Turkish Republic and then the Soviet Union. What I haven't figured out yet is do I want to have focus more on the legacies that let's look at the impact upon the practice of Islam in Turkey and in the former Soviet Union, that is, you know, how do Muslims in these uh, territories, uh, the fact that they've got both gone through this process of state-enforced secularization, has that changed how they understand the practice of Islam? So that would be sort of almost a more um, anthropological mm-hmm. uh, study. 
Um, or do I actually do I want to look at uh, making a more historical study and, and let's focus on you know the 1920s and the initial application uh, 1920s and 30s let's say the initial application of uh, secular secularization um, and how how is this uh, understood you know how did how is it, how was it received how was it understood by um, by uh, by Muslims uh, both pious and, and not so pious Muslims um, and the problem here is that there is so little written in, in, in the Soviet historiography on uh, secularization, particularly in the Muslim areas. That's why I'm wondering, well, yep. I might have to go back and do the spade work. So I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> the, 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 other, the, other question, the other topic is kind of also stems out, it stems uh, out of my book, and that would be perhaps writing a, a history of the Kurdish question, um, which is still very much uh, alive today. Uh, and I would perhaps trace it from what I see really its emergence in the 19th century is um, part of a, it's always been very closely tied up with inter- international, or again, I should say interstate uh, politics, and it continues uh, to be very much tied up with those dynamics. Uh-huh. And to see its emergence from the late 19th century uh, to, the, to the current, not, me, not the late 19th century, but the early 19th century um, to the current day. Because, um, again, one thing that I could bring to this is, uh, in addition to uh, being able to work with Ottoman sources, would also be bringing in uh, the Russian and Soviet um, role in this. Because then mm-hmm. that, both Russia, the Russian Empire has played a very important role in the development of uh, Kurdish, or say, Kurdish politics. And likewise, uh, so did the Soviet Union for much of the 20th century. Well, that should keep you busy for a while. It will, Keep yes. you out of trouble there. I hope. Well, we've been talking to Michael Reynolds today about his terrific book, Shattering Empires, The Clash uh, and Collapse of the Ottoman and Russian Empires, 1908 to 1918. I urge you to go buy it. Michael, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Sure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Reynolds, the author of Shattering Empires, The Clash and Collapse of the Ottoman and Russian Empires, 1908 to 1918. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.